Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. If you want to make change in a world filled with all sorts of horrors and obstacles, does it help or hurt to stay cheerful while you're going about your business? My guest today argues passionately in favor of cheerfulness, although you will hear him admit to still being miserable on occasion in his own way. Uh, So what to make of that seeming contradiction? Brace yourself, this is a romp. This is a rangy conversation that covers everything from nirvana to the Buddhist Four Noble Truths to why the Buddha was a scientist. Robert Thurman is a legend. Quickly, his backstory, which we'll get into, uh, but just so you know it here, uh, as a young Harvard student, he got into an accident and lost the use of one of his eyes. He dropped out of Harvard and went on a spiritual quest in the 1960s uh, that brought him to India, where he became the first Westerner to be ordained as a monk by the Dalai Lama, with whom he remains very close. Thurman later disrobed, got married, and had a bunch of kids, including the movie star Uma Thurman. He also became an academic. He was professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies at Columbia University. He's also the president of the Tibet House U.S. That's a nonprofit in New York City dedicated to the preservation and promotion of Tibetan civilization. He and his wife, Nena, also run an affiliated center called the Menla Retreat, which is north of the city, and they have a lot of fascinating programming there. In fact, this interview was conducted while Bob uh, was at Menla. Bob just turned 80, and he's a very busy dude. He has a new book called Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. He also writes a regular newsletter for Substack, and he hosts the Bob Thurman podcast. As I said, this is a wide-ranging interview with a fast-moving mind. We talk about what he calls bliss void indivisible. We also talk about why some of us feel unsafe when we're happy, why he was happy to lose his eye, And we hear his rather frank reflections on the promise and limits of the Dharma from somebody who's been practicing and studying for 60 years. I do want to warn you that you may not understand every reference he makes, but try to let it all wash over you because the net effect is, in my opinion and my experience, uh, very pleasantly head spinning. One item of business here, as I mentioned, Bob Thurman has for decades been one of the close confidants and friends of the Dalai Lama who, as you all know, is a Nobel Peace Prize winner, best-selling author, and spiritual leader to millions of people. I was fortunate enough to interview the Dalai Lama last year at the height of the pandemic, and now the team over on the 10% Happier app has put together excerpts of that interview for our Teacher Talks podcast in an episode which bears the very modest title, The Ultimate Source of Happiness. In that talk, the Dalai Lama does, in fact, reveal what he believes to be the ultimate source of happiness. Rather than spoil the surprise for you here, you can find the talk over on the 10% Happier app where it is free for everyone, whether you're a subscriber or not. If you're listening to the show on the app, just scroll down on your screen past the show notes to the related section, and you can find the episode there. If you're not a subscriber, just open up the app and click podcasts, and you'll see it right there. Okay, we'll get started with Robert Thurman right after this. 
As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. From bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Bob Thurman, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Congratulations on your new book. Well, actually, before I congratulate you on the new book, happy belated birthday. You recently turned 80 years old. Happy birthday. Thank you. I'm really pleased. My wife, subsequent to that, she also just turned 80. And subsequent to that, we had some dinners with people who were 82, 83. And she turns to me one day, driving back and says, you know, 80 is not that old. (laughs) (laughs) So I was really pleased with that. And and as I mentioned, congratulations, not only on your birthday and, but also on this new book. And the title of the book is Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. And so I, I just wanted to start on what are these four allegedly friendly and fun facts that you're advertising here? Well, the first one is the friendly fact of suffering. And (laughs) and the second one is the friendly fact of the cause of suffering, the diagnosis of why it's going on. And the third one is the prognosis that the reality underlying that is freedom from suffering, nirvana. So the real discovery and the most friendly fun fact is that all this is nirvana right now, here or now. 
And the fourth friendly fun fact is the educational curriculum, the path of how to stop suffering and recognize the nirvana quality of everything and be not only 10%, but 100% happier. <laughs> it's, then, not 100, it's not 100% happier, it's 100% happy. That's right, that's right, because there's no more error about it for you. Although this is the thing, there is still an error, in other words, a comparative element, because the way that Buddha discovered nirvana, it is the world now, as it really is. In that uh, are people who are suffering, who didn't wake up to that, and you're automatically engaged with them. And then the fun you have is seeing them discover their own nirvana, which they also have within them. It's sort of their deeper nature. And, the, and my, my translation or my expression, friendly fact, is a transposition for today of noble truth. Buddha took the word for noble like a normal social aristocrat. And the good part of him, that the noble is supposed to have noblesse oblige, altruistic concern for others. And he made a new meaning of it, of someone who has genuine empathy for others. The early translators of Buddhism wanted to think of it only as a religion. And a religion has to have something you believe. So like a credo. But this is not a credo. They tell you the first friendly fact of suffering you should acknowledge. So you don't put false expectations on regular, normal, self-centered interaction. And the second one, you're supposed to understand how it happens and the reason for it, the cause of it. The third one, you're supposed to realize, not believe, but know and, and experience. And the fourth one, you're supposed to practice. So I, I, I prefer fact. Truth is not wrong. It's just it can be either the reality of things or it can be a proposition about them. You know, truth can have both meaning. And Buddha was, if anything, non-dogmatic. So he didn't want people's blind faith, or blind belief. Just because he said something, then you're supposed to just accept it. He didn't like that. So that's, that's the story of the subtitle. So now that we're on it, these are the four noble truths laid out by the Buddha after his enlightenment. I think it would make sense to spin through them in a little bit more detail. But before we do that, can you just step back and give us some historical context on the four noble truths and why it's such a foundational list for the Buddhists? Absolutely. Because, well, I did have a colleague, Jose Cabazon, who in a conference once, it was so cute. He said... Well, Christians love God and Buddhists love lists. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, sure. Well, the thing is, this was Buddha's teaching to the five ascetics who had been with him when he was torturing himself for five, six years after he left the throne, you know, his crown prince situation. So they were ascetic seekers. 
and he is like a doctor. So they have a suffering problem. They are suffering. So he was acknowledging their symptom. And what he said was, he looked at them, and they hadn't had a bath in five years. They hadn't cut their fingernails or toenails, their hair, and they were all shriveled up from fasting. And he looked at them and he said, this is suffering. <laughs> didn't really take a genius you know, to notice. And then he extended it, meaning that as long as you think you're a soul separate being and the universe is not you, and in a way it is confronting you and you're up against it, then you're going to lose the struggle. Temporarily, some people will like you, the circumstances will be okay, you'll be in paradise, etc., etc. Later, it'll burn. Later, the people who liked you will be mad at you, etc. So uh, he just said, acknowledge that our normal delusional awareness that makes us think that we are the center of everything and it all rotates around us. And when it doesn't suit us, that makes us upset. That is unworkable and it will be frustrating. He didn't even uh, say like Socrates did, the unexamined life is not worth living. He never said it would be not worth living. He just said it'll be frustrating. It'll never work out quite. And then the cause is the wrong idea that we have, and that is that we are the center and we are the one. We just think we are and nobody else does. And so there's a fundamental discord about life waged in that way. So that's the second noble truth, and that's his analysis of the problem. But then what he had to say to them was, the real thing is freedom from that suffering, nirvana, being blown away from your struggle about I'm more important than the universe, which you're not, and you don't destroy the universe, and you don't destroy yourself. You just get into a better relationship with it. You are part of it. Others are as important as you, and there's many more of them. And so if you take account, identify with more of them altruistically, you'll be more happy if you can help them be happy, this kind of thing. So anyway, that third one is the reality that he discovered. The others are his analysis of how to deal and escape from the unreality, right? So then the fourth one is the path to the realization of the nirvana, of freedom, of bliss. He doesn't just say bliss, because people will be suspicious about bliss. They'll think it's something, whatever, because they both are used to being miserable, and they feel they're being realistic when they're miserable. I also do. The, the fourth one is three educations. It's eight branches, path, but it has three educations. Ethical education, mental education, and scientific or wisdom education. Those are the three kinds. Before you have had a big realization, 
you get into a more harmonious way of relating to others because the ethical is what's kind and loving and altruistic. You have to get to where you're more balanced to be able to do the other ones. Then the science one, the wisdom one, it's not religion. It's not believing anything. It's actually disbelieving that what you habitually perceive is the real reality. Sort of like a modern scientist. I'm looking at a beautiful building at the Menlo Spa here in the Catskills, and I think the wall is real, the Tibetan painting is real, the lamps are real, the windows, floors, ceilings, et cetera, et cetera. Nuclear physicists will tell me it's just atoms. They're mostly empty, electrons and nuclei. The reality of this is freedom. And, and that's a little hard to realize. So the third ed education is the mind. And that's where the meditation comes in. Although it has to be built on the ethics and the analysis and, and the, the critical deconstruction of the delusional reality in order to be able to reach toward the real reality, the, the bliss reality. So if meditation by itself by the normal self-centered person, 10 years later, instead of 10% happier, they'll jump up and they'll say, wow, I'm the greatest. I'm so great. Everyone should do what I want. And then when they don't, they freak out. So that's the thing. I say realistic because the highest realism is when you look through the uh, situation and you find it the true reality. And so that's why I picked the title, Wisdom is Bliss. To counteract ignorance is bliss, which we have as a saying, because we're conditioned to think that reality is scary, dangerous, harmful, and therefore better not to know and live in denial. So that's completely incorrect from Buddha's point of view. So it's the wisdom that's the bliss, knowing what it is and experiencing it really to the full as freedom. That's the key thing. Anyway, what do you think, Dan? <laughs> as I was saying, I, I want the, the listeners to know that when I was walking over here to have this talk with you, I was thinking 10%, he is so lucky. <laughs> Because I only think, I decided I weigh, I weigh in at around 3%. <laughs> but wait a minute, you just gave us this whole talk about the bliss of wisdom and nirvana and all this stuff. How, how are you only at 3%? Because I'm still too stuck in my conditioning. So in other words, I want the world to be the way it should be. And we have crazy people in the government and we have crazy people all over the place. And we have nearly wrecking the entire planet. California is burning. And women are not really recognized as the jewels that they are. So that all gets me upset. And I'm determined to fix it. And uh, I can't. On the other hand, I have no power. So that makes me unhappy. Now, if I knew it was Nirvana anyway, then I would actually be better able to try to do something to fix it. And that's what I'm working on. 
A, and B, I've studied enough and I've had experiential epiphanies enough about the bliss, freedom, indivisible that's out there that I'm confident that it is and I'm confident I'll get there. So that's my consolation for my 3%. So my 3% is, is my happiness and the 97% is the dark matter and dark energy of my safe misery and <laughs> my American misery. We gotta fix the world. Much more of my conversation with the irrepressible Robert Thurman right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you say it's all nirvana anyway, what does that mean? Well, it's a way of referring to something that's inexpressible, actually. The Buddha, this is what makes him so great and not a religious prophet or founder. He was a bit of a prophet in the sense of predicting the future. He could do that. Supposedly, when you can become fully enlightened, you are fully present in the future and the past. 
and you remember all your previous lives, which are infinite, and you see the infinite future very immediately. So you can kind of move around in time like we move around in space, apparently. Well, the nirvana is what's called the uncreated. The Eightfold Path is not the cause of nirvana. It's not, it doesn't need a cause. It's just reality. And it's like dark matter and dark energy, actually. There's two things that are invisible, two kinds of things. Things that are dark, like dark matter and dark energy, which our modern scientists, physicists, need to hold together their theories about the 3% that they can see. But they don't know what it is. But there's another thing they don't see, something that's transparent. When you look out the window, you don't see the glass unless it's dirty. You just look out, but the glass is there. So what I mean by nirvana anyway is nirvana refers to the absolute nature of everything, but absolute, in a sense, cannot relate to the relative. So therefore, no one could achieve it. So it criticizes any theory or ideology that absolutizes anything, makes anything into an absolute, be it God or nothingness or energy or power or whatever it is. So what that means is that the relative is the absolute. So the nirvana is like the world of suffering, like a projection on a white screen that has no problems. It's just pure white. But the movie projected on it, it's just light play on the surface of this thing, which is only an analogy for an inexpressible thing. So actually, none of it is really happening, in fact. Therefore, when you discover that, and that's even a problem to explain how that could even happen, because this is not 97%, it's 100%, transparency. It's called the clear light of emptiness or the clear light of freedom. And so instead of nothingness being the base of all the phenomena, a darkness, in other words, this transparency is the substance of all the interconnected things, which are all empty of any non-relational element. But they are happening because they can relate. And they are able to relate because they're empty of the non-relative. Therefore, their relation is the opposite. It's totally uh, absolute. And so and what that means then, when you know that, and again, I said how you know it is complicated, but when you know that, you realize that love is all you can do about your relations with things. In other words, there's no reason not to be 100% positive about everything. And you effortlessly do that because you feel that it's all nirvana. So you're holding in your mind two opposite things. You know F. Scott Fitzgerald? He said, the sign of a great mind is the ability to hold two opposite things in the mind at once. 
without damaging either one and without exploding the mind. So it's sort of in a light way and not necessarily fusing them in some way, in some simplistic way, but really keep them alive there. And that's the sign. And that's so marvelous because I always say enlightenment is the supreme tolerance of cognitive dissonance. Mm. What do you think? That everything is perfect and there's an enormous amount of suffering both That's right. at the same time. It makes it a little less enormous and it gives us the ability to help either ourselves or others overcome it, which we will definitely do. We'll all will do it. There's a happy ending to the universe and the great part about it is it's not the end of the universe. I can imagine some people listening to you you know, semi-facetiously, semi-facetiously describing yourself as miserable and only 3% happier and saying, well, this guy's been at it for a long time, meditating. He was a monk. He's been studying Buddhism in such a deep way for so long. Why should I even try meditating a couple minutes a day? Exactly. Exactly. This book is the first time I, I wrote it in a book. I, I would share it giving lectures to people even academic lectures. I'll, ne I'll never forget, I was giving a lecture, a distinguished lecture, and the person who introduced me mentioned, it was not long before my retirement, so I was in my mid-70s, and he mentioned that this, this sector was so distinguished, it's at Dartmouth College, actually, it was so distinguished that often in the history of the lecture, the giver of the lecture died afterwards <laughs> It was their last lecture. <laughs> <laughs> so first I had to ensure that when I told that I was not going to croak on the spot. And then I was sort of thinking, the subject of the lecture was Buddha, scientist, and educator. And then I was telling them, why am I taking such a subject which you guys don't believe? You don't think he was a scientist. You think he's a religious Buddhist. You know, although there was no Buddhism when Buddha was teaching, <laughs> it didn't exist yet. The, an educator when he's all known as the founder of the world religion. So why am I doing this? I said, well, one, I don't want to convert you to Buddhism because that would not be what Buddha wants you to do. And there are a lot of nasty Buddhists and miserable Buddhists, as well as miserable whatever other things. And also my teacher, the Dalai Lama, nowadays teacher, he, he's against converting anybody from anything to anything else, except converting them to their own better self from within themselves. That's it. And he says, everyone should keep their grandmother's religion, he says, and I agree. So that, I don't want to do that. Then second, I don't want to compete with Mary Baker Eddy to make a Buddhist science institute and Buddhist Science Newsletter, not because I would like to, but it's, I don't think that's the, it's the time. So that's not the point. So why am I doing it? I said, oh, I said, now I know. And it sort of came to me. Then I looked at the audience for a minute with a pause and I said, I, I guess my mission on, in this country is to overthrow your idea that your science and your appreciation of reality is the superior one of all time. And that scientific materialism is the final answer to all philosophy, all striving, and it's like precursor to 
paradise, heaven on earth. You know, I, th I want to overthrow that because it's a very dangerous idea and it's wrong. It's scientifically incorrect. So I said, our way of knowing here, we Western people, cannot be the best way of knowing because we are destroying the entire planet, all the other animals, and ultimately ourselves very quickly if we keep it up. So we must be making a mistake. And that doesn't mean we should go back to some blind-faced bunch of beliefs. That's good that we're free of that. But we've stuck in the blind faith belief that nothing is going to solve all the problems. That is to say, there will be no consequence to our destruction of all things sweet and beautiful and good on this planet out of our greed and our inability to control our addictive impulses. And that, that's not superior. So we have to learn something more, you know? And that's my, that's my idea, you know? That's my thought, really. And that should, that's not a religious matter. That's a matter of having a good life and also being good to others and sharing a good life with them. The, the enlightenment, the Western enlightenment, which is very similar to the Buddhist one, but not complete, that's all. But anyway, they got rid of religious domination of thought, you know, indoctrination. And your secular idea is good in that you don't proselytize and to demand that people adopt a certain ideology. You shouldn't in, in, in education, in liberal education. But the, the learning how to control your mind and learning the deeper nature of the altered states of awareness that we can achieve, the human being can achieve, and deeper ways of understanding things. That's part of the skill of life, the art of life. And that should be educated. And, and uh, maybe my next life, I can belong to a university like that. Like the ancient Nalanda University in India. They taught medicine, architecture, arts and sciences, engineering, agriculture, all sorts of things. But the core curriculum had to do with how kind are you going to be? How do you cultivate love, kindness, happiness? How do you find your bliss? How do you connect your profession to following your bliss so that you do it really well and to benefit yourself and others? And that's one thing that we miss. Much more of my conversation with the irrepressible Robert Thurman right after this. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health.
It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. I want to go back to this notion of you describing yourself as miserable, and I would imagine people hearing that and say, well, if this guy's miserable, why should I do any meditation? I, I imagine your answer would be something to the effect of, you may not achieve all nirvana everywhere. I, Robert Thurman, have not yet done that, but I'm still 3%, whatever percent, happier than I would be if I had gone on and followed my, you know, a career in, you know, oh, late yeah. stage capitalism. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, in my, in my own story, you know, I was so lucky to lose my left eye at 20. And that was really lucky. At the time, and actually, I didn't think so. I was upset about it. But I, it enabled me to have a midlife crisis at 20. And it's much better to have a midlife crisis at 20 than at 45. So because of that, the minute I woke up after the operation, cleaning up the mess of the accident and the optic nerve gone, so no transplant. Immediately, I said, I'm going to India. I had already read and studied enough that I knew that India had the answers about how to understand how your mind works. They've been doing it for thousands of years. They really have a mastery of that. And uh, that's why yoga, even though it's often only thought of as a physical postures and things, is so popular in, in the West. It's because it's a, based on a science of how the mind interacts with the body and working from the body side. It helps people with their health. So that helped me. My previous book called Why the Dalai Lama Matters. Well, when I published it, I had a meeting with the head of Simon & Schuster. And she said to me, okay, you're talking about the Dalai Lama. You're talking about Tibet. You're talking about how we're going to fix the planet and we're going to stop the genocide, et cetera, et cetera. So I need you to make an epilogue called 10 Points of Happiness. So I, I wrote it. And then I came up with a great thing at the end, which I really like. And I said, therefore, in dealing not only with the Tibet Holocaust and all the other disasters on the planet, to do something, we should be very activist. But we should only be activists while we're really happy and, if, and in a very cheerful way. So we don't hate the evildoers 
And we're not just making another violent turnaround, a you know, revolution, and a new bunch of violent people take over. We can't do that in this time in history. We have to be happy, happiness revolution, I say. And therefore, it is our duty, worldly duty, as well as a spiritual duty, to develop such a strong degree of happiness, to be so happy that even if they kill us, we'll die happy. <laughs> we know that human mind is so malleable and so flexible that by developing a certain passion or energy in it, it can override survival instinct and so on. And then we have histories of thousands of millions of saints and mystics and yogis and, and Taoists, I don't know who, how many, who have sacrificed themselves. And we have billions of women who have insisted on love and peace while being brutalized. And so it's possible to cultivate love to the degree where one would be willing to let go of one's life rather than harm someone else totally. It doesn't mean you would do it in a particular situation. And then there are complicated ones where you might take a life to protect other lives and other things like that. But the point is, it's possible to be that brave and that strong cheerfully rather than angrily. How would we develop the capacity to be cheerful even as parts of the world are literally on fire and there are so many big problems that we need to take care of? I know. Well, I think that, first of all, we, we can train ourselves to be cheerful. We have a cup of tea instead of a fist fight. You know, we, we, we're able to do that in modest circumstances. And in the bigger circumstances, we have to use our intelligence. And what we realize is, is that all these terrible problems will never be solved unless we stay cheerful. You know, Jesus said so, Buddha said so, Lao Tzu said so, Confucius said so, every great, Muhammad, people don't know that, but Muhammad basically said so also. He went into Mecca, where, who had been trying to kill him, sending armies against him in Medina. But he finally went in unarmed to go and pray at the Kaaba, which was a temple. But the point is, other methods don't solve the problems. We take a broader view of history, and anyone can do it. And we realize that we have to do something new, and we have to cheer people up. Because if you're happy, you'll be patient, and you'll think systematically. The one thing you don't need to do is to be angry, because when you're angry, you accomplish nothing. So therefore, don't expose yourself to people who are profiting on poking you that you should be angry. So make a plan and be happy. Don't be angry. But in the book, I, in dealing with realistic ethics and realistic livelihood, I do address these kind of activist issues because one of my motives in the book is in addition to being cheery, 
We need to be cheery and activists about the horrible mess because we're not going to fix the horrible mess by getting ang angry and getting and having a horrible life. You know, in your original question, how can I talk about bliss when I'm admittedly miserable? It's still to a great extent. And the reason is that what makes me capable of doing it, perhaps, is my consolation prize, which I awarded myself for being a loser of not becoming a Buddha in 60 years of study in this life. This is my understanding of, from the description that Buddha left of his experience. Before he attained nirvana under the tree there, he remembered his own infinite previous lives. And second, he became aware of everybody else's infinite previous lives as his, as his mind expanded with the empathy of identifying with everyone. He remembered he'd been all of them because beginningless, no first beginning. Universe has always gone on, different big bangs and big crunches. It's beginningless. So then he became aware of it was all nirvana anyway. But the event horizon of that realization of the uncreated that made him see he had already been in nirvana all that past time. He was already, it was just all play of light on the screen of nirvana. He that's why he could remember. We don't remember because we don't want to remember more suffering. So by realizing that, I realized when I do get nirvana, and because the future is also infinite, and I'll eventually find out what real bliss is, and I'll want it, and I'll get it. And at that time, I will experience that talking to Dan Harris on the 10% happier was nirvana already. <laughs> so retroactively, I'll enjoy this moment <laughs> as nirvana. And I'll, I'll note with sympathy how I failed to completely do it now, you know, and uh, I'll keep working on it. So that's my consolation. Bob, I have to say that talking to you has cheered me up and I really appreciate okay. you taking the time. Thank you very much. 12%? <laughs> I don't even want to put a ceiling on it like I that. know. I know. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very happy. Thank you. Thanks again to Bob. Uh, and thanks as well to the people who work so hard to make this show two and a half times a week. They include Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant. We get audio engineering from our friends over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you on Wednesday for a brand new episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai. And I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. 
I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.